right. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you today. And uh, I want to welcome uh, all of our guests and uh, first-time visitors across all of our campuses. Man, if this happens to be your first time, man, we're so thrilled that you're here. Whether you're joining us uh, from north, uh, downtown, west, uh, online, those of you here at Northwest, good to see you today. In fact, that all of our campuses can uh, hear you. Can we make some noise? Good to have you today. Grateful for you. And uh, today, I, I really want to encourage you, if uh, you're um, checking this place out, if you're uh, here and you're like, man, we're here, we're on mission, Traders Point is our home, I really want to encourage you to uh, go to uh, Growth Track immediately following the services at all of our campuses. And all Growth Track is, is just designed to help you identify and take your next step towards greater growth and connection. Uh, regardless of who you are, and we would love to see you there. Uh, it's for everybody if you're just checking the church out. And uh, you do not have to take Growth Track like in order. Like today is week number four. You can jump right in where we're at, just circle back around. Uh, we would love to have you there. And it's for, for everybody. You know, I've had a number of people come up and say, well, we've um, just moved to Indy from uh, out of town, and we were super involved in our old church. Do we need to go through Growth Track here? And I would say, yeah, we would love to have you in Growth Track. We've had people that have been around for 10, 15, 20 years. Never been through Growth Track, think it's for new people. No, it's for you too. We want to, you to go to growth, growth Track so that you can identify and take your next step towards greater connection and growth. And today is just getting plugged into a team. That's what it's all about. And I just want to encourage you that your church experience will get way better uh, when you don't just attend, but that you serve on a team somewhere. And we just find that story to be true over and over again. You may not believe me yet, but I'm going to keep telling you. Uh, I've had lots of people come up to me and say, man, we've met some of our closest friends and develop some of our deepest relationships by the people that we serve with. And whenever life gets hard, we uh, reach out to each other, we celebrate with each other, and I want that for you too. And uh, another thing that I oftentimes hear is that people say, well, we, we come in and we look around and it just kind of seems like you don't need any more help. And uh, I just want you to know that couldn't be the furthest thing from the truth. And I get it. Like last weekend, our family went to a different church just to worship together as a family, which is really, really nice. And I walked into the lobby and I walked into the, to the worship you know, room and, and I thought the same thing. I go, man, they seem like they got their act together. They don't need any more help. And then I immediately was like, no, that's not true. Like I know for a fact that's not true. And in fact, uh, I just want you to know that um, this used to happen occasionally. Now it's the norm uh, that we turn children and kids away from kids' ministry every single Sunday just because we don't have enough people to serve. And, and I'm losing sleep over that. And so I would just encourage you to consider jumping in and serving on a team if you haven't uh, already. Um, next week, we begin a brand new series of uh, messages that I'm really excited about called Rumble Strip. And uh, I believe that we're going to have fun in this next series. God's got something specific he wants to say to each and every one of us as well as our church. So uh, jump in on the first week of that series. Invite somebody to come with you. Uh, but today uh, we are wrapping up this series that we have been in uh, called Summer in the Psalms. And what we've been doing is taking a closer look at uh, these 150 chapters that are sort of tucked away in the middle of the Old Testament. And there's a number of ways that we could... Uh, describe the book of Psalms. One, one way that we could describe it is that they are just refreshingly honest. Uh, one of the unique things about Psalms that's different than many of the other books of the Bible is that most of the Bible is written as God's words to us, but what the Psalms are are our words to God. And what David does is he gives voice to some of the things that we're feeling, but we're not quite sure we can say to God. 
But David gives us permission to, and God receives it. I mean, David, when he's struggling, he just tells God. When he's like wondering where God is, he asks him. And David just uh, allows us permission to be able to come to God just as we are and be real with him. I love that about Psalms. Another way that we could describe it is that it is a collection of songs and poems. Uh, the Psalms just um, speak to that inner artist that is in all of us. Uh, some of us, that inner artist is buried a little deeper than others. Uh, if you're anything like me, that inner artist is there, but I haven't seen him for a while. And uh, the Psalms speak to him. And have you ever been in a car belting out lyrics to your favorite song and paid attention to what you're saying? And uh, you're saying things in a song you might never have the courage to say in a sentence. And that's what lyrics do, is that they give voice to some things that we're feeling when, when words fail us. And that's what the Psalms do. Uh, finally, uh, the Psalms are just kind of like a catalog uh, of prayer. They're examples of prayers when we're not quite fully sure what to say to God or how to pray. And um, I think many of us would say that prayer is a good thing. We know we need to pray more than we do, but if you're anything like me, maybe we just don't pray as consistently as we should. And there are all kinds of reasons for that. I know that even in my own life, there have been times when I just haven't prayed because I've been busy, because I've been distracted, because I'm frustrated, because I, I wonder if it's really changing anything or if anybody's really on the other end of the line listening. There are some times, though, I think that we don't pray because we don't feel that we're good enough or that we know enough to pray. And so we just don't, don't pray. Have you ever been around somebody that um, in every single way they seem like a normal person, like they're fun to hang out with and they're great to talk to, but then they pray and it sounds as if they just stepped out of the 1600s? Ever been around that person? And they're just like, you know, dear sweet heavenly hosts, we thank thee for thy plentiful bounty that is in front of us and ask thee to nourish thine bodies. And you're like, what are you talking about? Like, we don't need to change our language when we come to God to pray. We just need to be real. Because one of the most important things that I think that the Psalms teaches and reinforces in all of our lives is this simple truth right here, is that not only is it allowed that we come to God as we are, it's required. It's required that we come to God as we are because what other way are you going to come? If you don't come to God as you are, then that means that you're probably being dishonest about some things or you're pretending to be somebody that you're not or you're hiding some things. And God's like, listen, whatever it is, it's not going to phase me. I just want you to come to me just as you are. Prayer is not what good people do when they're at their best. Prayer is what imperfect people do with their imperfections. It's just an invitation to come to God as we are. We see this all over the Psalms, but we really see it today with the one that we want to wrap this series up with, uh, Psalm 51. And so if you have a Bible or a Bible app, go ahead and turn to or turn on uh, Psalm 51. And, and as you're turning there, if I could just say, if there was, out of the 150 Psalms, if there was a Psalm that we could use or that I would want to use to maybe set the tone uh, for um, who I am as a person. And what I mean by that is like the way that I um, interact with God, the way that I worship, the way that I treat my wife and interact with my kids and the way I am at work and the way I am with my friends. If there was a psalm to kind of set the tone uh, for my life, my, my inner life, it, it would be Psalm 51. If there was a psalm that I would pray would impact our church maybe more than any of the others, like, and when I say that, I mean 
that like um, there would be, it would make a tangible difference with the environment and the atmosphere at all of our campuses, that when somebody would set foot on one of our campuses, they may not believe in God, they may not have been in church in a really, really long time, but they set foot on one of our campuses and immediately they just detect that there's something different. There's something different about the way that we're carrying ourselves as people. There's a humble confidence there. There's a sweet spirit in the way that we're interacting. And especially with the way that we worship as a church when we gather together. If there could be a psalm that would describe or inform the way that we would be as a church, it would be this one. And so with that kind of setup, let me read the first three verses. Um, King David is, is writing this. And listen to his words. And I want you to pay attention to the passion. And maybe a little bit of a better word would be anguish behind the words that he writes. And he says, have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion, and it haunts me day and night. Now those are some pretty heavy words. And this is a good reminder for all of us that one really important uh, principle of good Bible interpretation and application, in other words, what is it that we're reading, what does it mean, and how do we apply it, is that it really does matter how you read the Bible. Like every now and then I'll have somebody say, well, I tried to read the Bible and it was just boring, and I just want to very lovingly but directly kind of cut them off and say, um, if it's boring, you're not reading it right. And the Bible may be a lot of things. And you may not even believe it all yet, and you may not understand it all yet, but, but it's not boring. If it's boring, it's because you're reading it in a boring way. And this would be a good example. Like, you can't just read what we just read in a flat, monotone, no inflection, passionless way. Because these are some pretty deep things that David is saying. He's crying out. He's like, God, have mercy on me. So here's what's happening David, as he writes these words, chances are the page is blurred because he's writing them through tears. Because this is David at his lowest moment. And what I want to know is, do you have one of those? Do you have a low moment in your life? I do. I, I've probably got several that I could rattle off. I thought about it this last week. I was like, what was the lowest moment of my life so far? Maybe you have a date in mind. Maybe it was like January 16th, 2015. That was the lowest moment of my life. Maybe that particular day uh, you uh, were exposed. Maybe that particular day what you had been hiding got revealed. Maybe that particular day you said something you didn't mean, but it had lasting consequences. Maybe that particular day you were embarrassed or humiliated, and you look back and you say, I never want to live that over again. That was my lowest moment. Now, can you remember the way you felt? I don't want to keep you there too long, all right? But can you remember how you felt? And if you can, if you can tap into at least a little bit of the anguish of that, now you're beginning to understand what David felt as he writes these words. Here's what's going on for David. David is at his lowest moment. And some of you know the story. Uh, to keep a long story short, David uh, slept with a woman who wasn't his wife. Now she's pregnant, so he has her husband killed to cover it all up. So not a good day, generally speaking, all right? Uh, we don't want to do that too many times, all right? So, so this is David in his lowest moment. That's all happened. Now what's worse about this whole thing is that David seems to be unaware of just how far off the rails he's jumped. 
Um, he is acting like he's entitled to it. He's full of pride. He just seems to be um, unaffected by what he's done, the drastic nature of what he's done. And that's when God decides to send a friend of David's, a guy named Nathan, to go confront him in that moment and bring about a term that I want you to get really, really familiar with today, uh, to bring about godly conviction into David's life. Like God loves David far too much to leave him in that moment. And so God is going to pull out all the stops to flag David down, get his attention, and say, David, I need you to come back to me here. And so he sends this guy named Nathan to confront David. Now, can you just imagine being Nathan for a second? Just put yourself in his sandals. That would be a really intimidating thing to do. That would be like you, you know, confronting your boss or you confronting somebody in authority over you. I mean, David's the king. Not only that, but uh, David's already had somebody murdered to cover up his junk. And so what makes Nathan think David won't do the same for him? And so Nathan comes to David, and he's a smart cat. Like, he knows if I go right at David, David will probably fight me and kill me. So let me slide through the back door of David's heart by telling him a story. And so he tells David a story about a family that has a sweet little lamb, and they love this lamb. And then some mean guy comes along and steals the lamb and takes it for himself. And David is just so upset by the injustice of this story. And he says, that man should be put to death. And now it's Nathan's turn to cry. And I have no doubt that Nathan had tears in his eyes when he looked at David and said these penetrating words, David, you're the man. You're the guy in the story. And you got to give David some credit here because at that moment, instead of powering up, David was broken and the veil fell from his eyes. And there was a number of ways that he could have responded to this. David could have gotten defensive with Nathan. Have any of you ever gotten defensive whenever a friend or a family member confronted you in a moment where you needed to be confronted? Yeah, me neither. But just hypothetically, like we could imagine that that might be the case. And how many of you like ever just like, you know, you've denied it or maybe you've gotten upset or maybe you make excuses and David could have done all those things, but he doesn't do it. Instead, David receives it. I love how the message paraphrases what we just read. It says, soak out my sins in your laundry. I know how bad I've been. My sins are staring me down. David realizes what he's done, and his response is to be humble. His response is to receive it. And uh, can I just say this, that, that conviction is a gift. Conviction is a gift. And we don't talk enough about it. And so because of that, because conviction is uncomfortable, we can all admit that. Like, it's never fun when anybody comes to you and says, hey, we need to talk. Like, you're like, oh, no. It's never fun, and we can end up misunderstanding godly conviction that is a gift in our lives. In other words, could I say it this way? God's discipline isn't to pay you back. It's to bring you back. So God's not trying to discipline David to, like, pay him back. He's trying to bring him back. The most loving thing that God could have done was send Nathan to confront David in the middle of that moment. Now, conviction sometimes feels a little bit like condemnation, but it's not because Jesus already took that for you. So conviction is a gift. And we, if you're going to follow after Jesus, if you're going to grow, if you're going to allow the Holy Spirit to do some heart work within you and within me, then we've got to get real comfortably uncomfortable with conviction because it's an opportunity 
to be transformed. It's an opportunity to change things. So I, I've got a friend. Just one friend. All right, no, no. I have three. All right, no, I, I, uh, I've got a friend um, who, uh, who has uh, four kids at home, and they're actually a little bit older now, but when they were younger, uh, they had a white couch in their living room that looked much like this one. And uh, just, just a little bit of counsel here for you. If you have young kids at home, probably shouldn't have a white couch, all right? They're, they're very pretty and all, but it's just a matter of time. They're, it's going to get some kind of a stain on it. And sure enough, my uh, friend's wife was doing some cleaning one day, and she uh, pulled up one of the seat cushions of her white couch and noticed there was a grape juice stain on the cushion. And so she uh, marched all four of their kids in, and they began to interrogate them. And, of course, all of them had no idea what had happened I was like, we don't know where that uh, stain came from. And so um, they said, well, uh, we need to know. It just didn't appear out of nowhere. And several hours later, one of their daughters uh, came in, and through tears, she confessed to the crime. And she just said, you know, I uh, know I shouldn't have done it. I knew the rules, but I thought I'd be super careful. And um, I, it was an accident, and I spilled the stain on the couch, and then she proceeded to tell them what she was trying to do about it. She was like, I was trying to scrub and scrub away at it, and nothing uh, would take the stain out. And so she ended up just flipping the cushion over and hiding the stain. And you know, um, Psalm 51 sort of like speaks to that guilty little kid in all of us, because if the couch represents our lives, then we all have a stain. Like, like, we've all got a stain somewhere in our lives. And maybe it was connected to that low moment that I asked you to think about a few minutes ago. Maybe it was, it's connected to some sort of shame. Maybe it's connected to a lie that you told that's always followed you around. Maybe it's told to some decision that you made. And so we've got this, like, this couch, and, and we've all got a stain. I know, it's painful, isn't it? Some of you... Some of you that are like perfectionists are like, oh, I got to leave. Uh, <laughs> and so the, the issue is here, like when it comes to this stain, I'm like really relishing this. I love this so much. What do you do with it? Like, I think for many of us, like, when we uh, felt convicted, when we realized that our lives were imperfect, that there, uh, and it was our fault, right? Like, there was this thing within us that maybe this thing that, like, we, we, we want to change, but we don't know how to change. And maybe for many of us, we just thought, well, if I just can scrub away at it, you know, and try to get it out, and, but it doesn't, doesn't work. And for many of us, uh, we, we tried re being religious, and it didn't work. And we tried to be moral, and it didn't work. And we tried to be good people, and it didn't work. And we tried to... Whatever we think the society is asking of us, and it's just the stain is still there. And so here's what many of us have done is just, what stain? What are you talking about? Like, out of sight, out of mind. And we just think if we could just flip the cushion, then, but, but it doesn't go away. It, it continues to, to be there. And so the issue is, is, is what do we do with the stain? And David in chapter 51 addresses this. David says that the that the source of his stain is his sin. 
And God has lovingly confronted him in it. And that's not meant to condemn him. One of the things that I'm discovering is that our, the way in which we view the world is oftentimes connected to the way in which we view God. The way in which we view God is oftentimes connected to one of our earliest experiences with someone who claimed to know, represent, and follow God. Whether that was a teacher, a pastor, a parent, an extended family member, a college roommate, somebody that you work with. And if they were kind and gracious and loving and they were like Jesus to you, then your view of God is much more positive. If they were mean and if they were condescending and if they were judgmental, then your view of God is probably very negative. Maybe even so much so that you left God. You just walked away. And you said, if that's the way God is, then, then no thanks. I don't need to feel any worse about myself than I am. And what I just simply want you to know is that God is just asking all of us. It's as, it's as simple and yet as complicated as just coming to him and just saying, God, I just want to allow Jesus to do for me what I can't do for myself. And God comes along and he says, hey, thank you for just going ahead and giving me the stain. Thank you for going ahead and just being real with me and allowing me to do for you what you could never do for yourself. <clears throat> It's happened in the last service, too. There's some of you who are like, I know how he did that. All right, Mr. Wizard. All right, it's... But zone in back with me here. Listen, if your view of God is that he's a big traffic cop in the sky trying to catch you doing wrong, that he's never pleased with your efforts, that he just wants to ruin all of your fun, that's not God. It's not him. It's something else. It's not God. God is for you. He is not against you. God created you, and he loves you, and he wants you to reach your full potential. God says, I've got a plan for your life. It's a plan not to harm you, but a plan to prosper you. And Jesus gives us direct access to God. And the way in which we get that access is by first just getting real with God. It's, it's I'm going to stop trying to manage the stain of my sin. I'm going to stop trying to cover it up. I'm just going to expose it to God. I'm just going to get real before him. And that's what David does. Look at this in verse 4. David says, against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say and your judgment against me is, is just. I love how the message paraphrases that. It says, whatever you decide about me is fair, because I've been out of step with you for a long time. And he says in verse 5, For I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me, but you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Notice how David just like comes to God and he just lays it all out there and it takes tremendous courage to say those words. And can I just ask you today, when was the last time you prayed that prayer? Just God, here, here's me, search me, seek me out. Is there anything in me that you need to confront? When was the last time that you felt the Holy Spirit confronting you in a moment and then we're receptive to it. There's so many times when I felt the Holy Spirit convicting me and I don't want to feel bad about myself because I'm having a rough enough week as it is and I just shut him out. But conviction, godly conviction, is meant to be a gift, not to destroy us, not to make us feel worse about ourselves than we are, but to urge us to grow, to look more like, it's for our own good. So can I just give you an example out of my own life? It just happened last Sunday. Last Sunday night, I was taking my son, Connor, to 
uh, Taylor University for soccer camp this last week, and uh, we're driving up I-69, and right about 10 minutes or so before we get there, uh, it just starts pouring down rain, and it's just uh, to hardly to where we can't even see anything. And we pull onto campus, we find the gym where the team's going to kind of huddle up before they go to the dorms, and there were other teams and other schools there, so there's kind of boys everywhere. And uh, he goes in, kind of meets up with his team, runs back out to the truck, still pouring down rain. He says, Dad, we got we to uh, go down to the, the dorms, and you got to drop me off and all my stuff. And, and I didn't know where the dorms were, and so all the parents are pulling out of the parking lot, and so I, I needed to follow them if I know where to go. And right then, there are two young boys that, who I didn't know, that they, they didn't look familiar to me. They ran up to my truck, and they're standing in the rain with their suitcases and their sleeping bags. And um, so I rolled down the window, and they said, uh, could you give us a ride to the dorms? We, we don't have a ride. Now, this should be a no-brainer, right? Young boys standing in the rain, like, of course, like, get in the truck. But, yeah, not me, all right? For, for whatever, I don't know what was going on in my head, but here's what was going Let me just kind of let you in on what was going on in my head. It happened in a split millisecond, but here's what happened. My first thought was, well, the parents are all pulling out of the parking lot, if I don't go, I'm going to like lose them. I'm not going to know where the dorms are. So you kind of hold me up. And then secondly, it's like pouring down rain and you guys are really, really wet. If you get in my truck, then you're getting my truck wet. And then if I'm going to have to get out of my truck to actually help you get your suitcases in the back, which means that I'm going to get wet and I'm nice and dry right now. (laughs) All that went through my mind in one second. And I was like hesitating. Like I should have been like, of course, man, get out of the rain, get in, get your stuff in the truck, but not me. And finally, like, I came to, like, I was like, yeah, of course, you know. It's like, who are you guys anyway? They're like, we play on your team. Okay, I knew that. So I I go and, like, I get the stuff, like, throw it in the back, like, drive them to the the dorms. Like, I'm hoping that they didn't see the hesitation on my face. And and I drop them off, and I say goodbye to my son. Man, have a good week. I get back in my truck. I get onto I-69. I'm driving back to Indy, still raining, and all the way back to Indy. It's like the Holy Spirit is like one of those speed bags. It's like, like all the way down, and it was just heavy, heavy conviction. And some of you are like, man, you're being a little too hard on yourself. Well, thank you. All right, thank you. I appreciate that. No, that, no, because it wasn't about hesitating in a second. That, 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 that's connected to some sort of heart issue that I need to do some work on. See, in that moment where the Holy Spirit, the Holy, wait, here's what the Holy Spirit was doing. He wasn't condemning me. He was convicting me. You see the difference? He wasn't saying, you're such a horrible person, like you should resign from your job. You're a pastor for crying out loud. He wasn't doing any of that. It was just simply this, Brockett, wake up. It was like smelling salts. Like if you're going to actually hesitate in that moment, imagine what you're going to do in another moment when somebody's in need. You need to get outside of yourself more. It was a moment where I felt convicted and And it was a gift from God to say, hey, there's an issue here, and you need to identify it, and then you need to learn how to grow from it. There is a monumental difference between conviction and condemnation. God is not condemning you. And I can say that so confidently. You want to know why? Romans chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. John 3, 17 Um, God did not send Jesus into the world to judge or condemn the world, but to save the world. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9, God does not want anyone to be destroyed, but he wants who? Everyone. He wants everyone to repent. That means everyone. Now, Now, repentance, I know that's like one of those words like you were with me until it was like repent. 
You're like, ah, I don't like that. Repentance is a beautiful thing. Man, here's all repentance. We need to reclaim the word because some of us had got hijacked from some sweaty TV preacher that said, you know, repent. And you're just like out on it like all the time. Listen, like repentance is a beautiful thing. Here's what repentance means. Repentance, how many of you have ever gotten lost? Yeah, three of you. All right, tell me. We've all been lost before. Now, here's the thing. When you realize that you are lost, you've got a decision to make. And and it's not going to help if you're traveling down the road and you're like, hey, I'm lost. I should have taken that turn back there. I'm really sorry I did that. I'm just going to keep going. (laughs) No, repentance is like, you know, you actually like take the exit and you turn off and you turn around and you go back the other way. Repentance is a beautiful thing. Repentance is a daily thing. Sometimes repentance needs to be an hourly thing. And see, right now, maybe there's two paths that you don't want to be on. The the one path is just simply this. I'm not worthy. And that would describe the way some of you feel right now as you walked in here today and you had a lot of baggage and you feel like damaged goods because somebody told you that you were damaged goods and you said, I'm not worthy of God's love. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit will speak to your heart and tell you that you are worthy, that you were worth the life of God's own son. The other path you don't want to be on is simply this one. I'm not that bad. And some of you are on that path. Like, well, I'm not that bad. Like, you know, I don't, I don't really know if it's a stain. I mean, it's just like a little mark. Um, like, I'm, I'm pretty good. Like, a God grades on a curve. And I, I'm keeping my eye on those people over there. <laughs> Way better than them over there, right? And the Holy Spirit will speak. The question is, is are you listening? And we live in a society where uh, we don't know how to confront in a healthy way. We just condemn. We, we don't even know that there's a difference. And David isn't doing either one of those things. David isn't, David isn't going, oh man, I'm just not worthy, God. And he's not going, hey God, it's not that bad. He didn't do either one of those things. In Psalm 51, we see him doing This right here, we see him receiving the conviction of God. It's not self-loathing and it's not self-preservation. He isn't in denial and he's not defensive. He's not trying to control the situation like some of us do. And he's not being controlled. He isn't pretending to be somebody that he's not. David just gets real. And that's maybe the best description of repentance that I could give to you. Is that repentance just simply means just get real. I love how author Tim Keller describes the gospel. He says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared hope. And that's why you have heard me say, if you've been around here for any length of time, and you will continue to hear me say until my days here serving this church are done, that God loves you just as you are. Are. But he loves you. But he loves you far too much to keep you there. God loved David just as he was in that moment, yet there was some work that needed to be done. And God is going to speak to you and he's going to release the Holy Spirit to speak and to convict, not because he wants to make you feel bad about yourself, not because he wants you to feel condemned, not because he wants you to think that you're not worthy, but because he has something better in mind for you. And he wants you to grow. And the only way that you and I are going to come to see that 
is when we are open to that conviction. Let me say it again. The purpose of God's discipline isn't to pay us back. It's to bring us back. And whenever we are brought back, the result of that should always be joy. And joy is far better than happiness because happiness is dependent upon your circumstances. Joy is dependent upon something far deeper. And so listen to what David writes as he wraps up in verse 8. He says, oh God, give me back my joy again. Like, you have broken me, now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sin. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart. And then in verse 16, he says, you do not desire a sacrifice. And what he's talking about is the Old Testament sacrificial system, the ceremonial system in which you would offer a burnt sacrifice. You would bring in a lamb or a goat or whatever, the best of the best, and you would sacrifice it to God in order to be made right with him again for the week. Now, aren't we glad that we don't have to do that nowadays? It'd be super messy in here. He's like, you don't desire that sacrifice, but if you did, I would offer one. But that's not what you want. You don't want a burnt offering. Verse 17, the sacrifice you desire, God, is a broken spirit. In other words, just get real. It's, it's humility. And you will not reject a broken and repentant heart, oh God. That's a promise. God will not reject a heart that is humble. God never looks at you and says, whoa, that sin is like one sin too far. Like I can't handle that. God says, no, 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 man, if you are repentant, if you are humble, if you come to me just as you are, I will never, ever reject that. And all of that sets the table for what I would call life-changing worship. The message paraphrases what we just read this way. Going through the motions doesn't please you, God. I learned to worship when my pride was shattered. The way in which you come to worship is when you, you shatter your pride and you realize that you need some help and you cry out to God for that help. And my desire, my prayer is that this would shape the way that our church worships, that when we gather at all of our campuses together collectively and when we raise our voices and sing some songs, that it would be a, a gathering or a group of individuals who come to God uh, with humble hearts and expect that they're coming to meet with God. So one of my favorite memories when I was growing up was fishing with my grandpa. And uh, I miss him. He passed away from cancer about six or seven years ago. And he would take me fishing a lot. And I remember one time we went to my great-grandfather's farm. He had a pond in the back. And we were fishing. And my grandpa you know, put the worm on the hook and got me all set up. And then he kind of ran down a little ways to help somebody else. And, and I, I was maybe five or six years old. I remember taking the rod and I cast it out, but I didn't like hit the button right. And so when the, when the hook went out, it snagged and then it came right back at me. And it hooked right in my finger. And it got me good. Like it immediately started bleeding. And uh, I, you know, was trying to tug at the hook and it was like really in there. The barb was in there. Now, now here was my, my response wasn't this. Well, look at that. I got a hook in my finger. No, that wasn't my response. My response was more like, ah! It's like, I think that kind of adequately captures it. And that's, that's what I did. I like yelled out. Like, I, like I, I got this thing in my finger and I can't do anything to get it out. And what happened is my grandpa, as soon as he heard me yell, like he, his head jumped up. He dropped his rod, whatever he was doing, ran to me in a full-on grandpa sprint, right? Just like the... I mean, it's just that, that, I mean, he's like trying to get to me as fast as he can. 
And he comes up and he like gets the hook out and he's wiping up the blood and he's comforting me and he's helping me. And, and I don't know, just for whatever reason, that just like image is like in my head this last week as I'm studying this and looking at this is God's like, hey, Aaron, that's kind of the way I want you to worship. Any of you have a, any of you have a hook in your heart? Like any of you snagged up on something? Like the response isn't like, well, I'm really going through this difficult thing. And look at that. No, it's just like, ah! you know, it's like I'm going through this thing and I, I'm crying out because I, I don't know what to do with it. And God, he says, when you are humble, when you cry out, when you lay down your pride, he runs to you. And that's what I want it to feel like in this room. Now, Judging by the applause, not all of you are with me, all right? And uh, that's okay. That's okay. Like, I'm not coming at you, all right? I, here's a, my prayer this last week is I was like, God, I would love it if 100% of our room, when we worship together, like, it, it, we would just all be leaned in. Like, we would just all be locked in. We, I, I mean, uh, last year, Lindsay and I, were in, we were in London, and we, we were at this gathering of, of uh, Christians from all over the world. And, and uh, we worshiped together, and everybody was leaned in. And I, let me tell you, like, it was powerful. Like, it was palpable in the room. It was, it was such a far better worship experience whenever people are in it. And sometimes, um, and, and I, I just want to say this as lovingly as I can. You know, sometimes, like, the, our worship teams, it almost kind of feels like they're trying to pull a stubborn mule to worship, you know. It's just like, come on, guys, come on, let's go. And I'll look around the room, and some of you just aren't going to go there. And I get it. There may be reasons. There may be good reasons. Maybe you don't believe in God. That's a good reason. <laughs> Maybe you're, like, you're new to this, and I, I get all that. I don't think we're going to ever get 100% of the room because people are people. We're all over the map in our spiritual journeys and maybe the week that you had and your background and personal experiences with church. But I do wonder if we could get at least 80% of the room. What I mean is, is that just, just ready, just coming every week ready. And you don't have to like all the songs. You don't have to like all the instruments. In fact, the scripture is silent on style. Did you know that? Never once does it say you need to worship with piano and organ or rock it out with a drum kit and a sweet guitar solo. It never says that. And I think the reason why is because Jesus knew that through the generations and the centuries, the style would have to change to reach more people. The, the piano wasn't in the New Testament. The piano came out of the bar. You ever see the old westerns? There was a piano in there. And the church brought the piano into the church because they knew that the people that were in the bar would identify with the piano. And they took a song like Amazing Grace, which was a bar tune, and they changed the lyrics so that way they would understand the tune. The only thing that the scriptures say about our worship is that we should worship in spirit and in truth, be real, and that God likes a new song. In fact, God says, make a new noise unto me because I'm doing a new thing in your life. And so every week when we gather, I just want to lovingly guide you. I, wouldn't, I will never judge your worship. I make you that promise. But as your pastor, I will urge you to lean in and expect that the Spirit of God would meet you in this place to speak what needs to be said to your heart and then would help take you the next step towards greater Christ-likeness. And so I just want to ask you to lean in and see what might happen. And so let me pray for us, and in these moments of silence, just allow the Spirit of God. I just, want you, I just simply want to ask you to pray this prayer. God, search me. Search me. Maybe I came here today. I didn't even know 
what I didn't know. I didn't even know that there was this thing in me that you wanted me to see. And God, help me to be humble enough to receive your loving conviction, knowing that it's not condemnation. Jesus already took that on. It's loving conviction so that I may look more like you. I tell you what, we could get 80% of our people in our church doing that, we'd change the whole world. Father, we come to you right now, and I just ask that right now in this moment, it would just be palpable that your spirit would comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable that you would search our hearts and help us to see what maybe we can't see on our own, knowing that you're a good God and you want something better for us, and you will bring about godly, loving conviction to help get us there. So meet us in this moment, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.